Good morning, guys. Oh, that was beautiful. Um, I am so excited to be here, and I, I want to start off, um, before we get into um, our message today, um, one, by, by just thanking you guys. Um, my wife and I, uh, we've been coming here since October, and we actually came on staff about a month ago, and, and, and since we've been here, um, you guys have truly made this place feel like home to us. Um, just, you guys have been so great, um, just generous to us, have been so hospitable, and so on behalf of um, my wife, Anna, um, my boys, James and Henry, and my daughter, Lillian, um, I, I just want to say um, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Even Free Fullerton is rapidly becoming and is already feeling like this is um, our home. With that being said, also, um, if I look a little tired this morning, um, it's because I have a five-month-old little girl, and she has decided to start teething the night before um, I was going to preach before you guys. And so if I yawn, it has nothing to do with you. We can blame it all on my daughter, uh, Lillian. So just wanted to preface that um, before we get into God's Word. And so a long time ago, before um, I actually came on staff here, I mean, actually, um, Darren made a, a Calvary Chapel joke, I actually came to faith at a, a Calvary Chapel. And I was about 20 years old when that, when that happened. And so I, I lived a little bit of life prior to being a disciple of Jesus. And so for a lot of those years before, before becoming a disciple, um, it, it's pretty safe to say that I spent a lot of time um, at parties. But then when I turned 21, um, a family at the church that was famous for throwing some of the best parties um, in our community decided that they were going to throw a party for me. And I, and I was going to be the, the, the guest of honor. And so um, at Donnie and Jen's, um, when, when they threw this party for me, I don't think they, they, they truly knew what, what they were doing and how they were blessing me when they threw this party. Because when we were there that night, just person after person came up to me, just speaking truth over my life, speaking words of affirmation, coming alongside me and encouraging me. And I, in that moment, I, I think I truly began to see what it meant and feel what it meant to be um, celebrated. And that by being at that party, I was, I was now a part of something so much bigger. Um, I, I was a part of a community and I was part of a family of God who was not just celebrating me, but the reason that I was at that party, which was Jesus. But here's the thing, though. If you take anything out of that party, if you take out Donnie and Jen, who threw the party for me, I mean, it's truly not a celebration. It's just people hanging out at a stranger's house. If you were to take the people um, that were there to celebrate me, it would have been me just having dinner with Donnie and Jen. And if you were to take the reason out of the celebration, there was really no reason to be there, just a bunch of people in a house. And so today, as we continue our series, um, A Place at the Table, we're going to look at that through the parable of the prodigal son. Now, to be completely honest, I, I don't know the reason exactly why Darren asked me um, to share in this particular portion of text. He probably assumed that uh, I didn't always know Jesus and I liked to party, or because I have tattoos, that means I like to party. Um, but in, in all seriousness, I, I'm, I'm a genuinely a, a very contemplative person. And so as I spent time in the text this week, especially as I got to the end of this parable, and I see the posture, and I see the love in this Father, I really began to challenge myself and really invited the Spirit of God to challenge me on what it truly meant to celebrate when we invite, or when someone new, excuse me, comes to the table. So join me as we pray. Father, this is your word, God. Lord, you have something to say to us this morning, God. It says, we look at this parable of the prodigal son and the father and the older brother. Lord, would you speak to our hearts, Lord? 
Lord, would you, through this parable, make us look more like you, Lord? Would you expand um, just our eyes and our hearts to truly see what it means to celebrate? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, we're going to be spending about 99% of our time um, in verses 11 through 32, which was read this morning. Um, But I feel in order to truly understand the the context and and the breadth of what's happening in this parable, uh, we we need to be brought up to speed a little bit. And so I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to paraphrase the other two parables, and then we'll get into the text. So verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And just like how Pastor Darren shared last week, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time, they are, they are continually appalled by the ministry of Jesus. 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 Particularly in the type of people who he liked to spend time with. They were appalled by the people that he was interacting with. And so in response to the Pharisees in, in, in Luke here, Jesus tells three parables. And in verses 4 through 7, you don't have to turn there. I'm briefly going to paraphrase them. Uh, It says that Jesus shares the parable of a shepherd. And the shepherd loses one sheep. And it says that he's so distraught over the one that is lost that he leaves the 99 to go find the one. And then when he finds the one sheep, he picks it up. In case you're wondering, this is the way you carry a sheep on your shoulders. Uh, He picks it up and he carries it on his shoulders home. And then when he gets home, it says he calls his friends and his neighbors and he says, celebrate with me, rejoice, for the sheep that I have lost is found. And then Jesus, addressing those listening to to his parable, says, so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need to repent. And then in verses 8 through 10, uh, we see the parable uh, of a woman And this woman loses a coin, which is about, it's not just one coin. The coin equals a sum of money, which is about a day's wage. And so because she lost so much money, it says that she diligently looks for this coin. And then when she finds it, it says that she calls all of her friends and her neighbors. She says, rejoice for she has lost, excuse me, she has found what she has lost. And just like in the prior parable, Jesus addresses his listeners when he says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now we get to verse 11, where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. Now, if you turn to your Bibles, um, this, this particular parable um, is probably titled, if your Bible has the little titles on the top, that says the parable of the prodigal son. But if you ever spent any time studying this text and you opened up a commentary, it's easy to find um, source after source of scholar after scholar saying who this parable is truly about. Many will argue that, um, that the, the, the parable lives up to the title and that this is the story of a son, of this is the story of the prodigal son. And then some will argue that, that but, but when you actually spend time in the text, you see that this is the story about the older brother. And then some will even say that this, this, the star of this story is truly the father. But I feel like when we look at the larger narrative of what's happening here in in Luke chapter 15, um, it becomes pretty easy to see what this parable that we're about to read is actually about. Because I shared a minute ago that there was a parable of a woman who loses a coin, finds the coin, and then celebrates. And then prior to that, there was a parable of a shepherd who loses a sheep, finds the sheep, and then celebrates. So then what is this story about? This is a story of a father who loses a son, finds him, 
and celebrates with his community. So if you're there, let's go ahead and read um, verses 11 and 12. And it says, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Now, at the time when Jesus is sharing this parable, now anybody who would have heard him tell this story immediately would have been appalled by the actions of the younger son. See, historically, it was a rule of thumb um, for that when the father dies, his, um, his estate was divided between his children. So if there was two sons, two-thirds would go to the older, and then a third would go to the younger. But you see, this only happens when the father dies. And this is what makes this, the younger son's request um, just so, so scandalous, that when he asks his father for his inheritance early, essentially before his father, before his entire community, he's saying, I wish you were dead. His actions say, Dad, I don't want you, I don't want your life, um, I don't want your ways, all I want is what's coming to me. And so give it to me so I can take it and go on with my life. You see, to this younger son, to the prodigal, the the father was merely a means to an end for him to get what he wanted. Now, the younger son's actions in this parable are not the only thing that's shocking. It's not the only thing that would have um, gotten people's attention. Because when we look at the other half of verse 12 we see the father's response. We see a father that complies. The father had every right to drive his son out of the house, beating him along the way. And actually, if he wanted to go to to the extreme, permitted by the law, he could have done a lot more. Um, It's going to be on the screen. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, verses 18 to 21 says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take him and bring him out to the elders of, elders of his city at the gates of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city, not just the elders, shall come out and stone him to death with stones. So you shall shall purge the evil from your midst, and all of Israel shall hear and fear. Now, this is not the response of the father in our story, though. You see, this father gives in to the request of his son, dividing his property between the two. Now, if we were to imagine this taking place today, um, it's easy to see the father... Um, upon agreeing to the younger son's request that he's going to go home and maybe transfer some money into the son's account or maybe he's going to go online and, and sell some stocks and then transfer that money into the son's account. And this could all be done outside of the view of the community. But you see, in, in this culture, all of your wealth, all of your value was tied up um, in your property. So your worth, your, your, your standing in the community, the way you were perceived, um, was all wrapped up in what you owned. So the younger son's request um, didn't only pull him out of relationship with his father, but it also tarnished the father's relationship with his community as as the, the community watched his father recklessly sell his land to send out his son. And an instance where it was easy for a father to show his son the rejection that the, the, the same rejection that the son was showing him, we see a father respond with love and grace, giving in to the selfish request of the prodigal son. 
Verse 13. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far-off country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And when he began to be, in, or excuse me, and he began to be in need, so he went and he hired himself, hired himself out to one of the citizens who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself or came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger? So we see that after the father sells off his land, the son takes his inheritance and he goes off to this far off land, this far off country. And he squanders it. He squanders it on reckless living, ultimately, probably, ultimately finding himself um, homeless finding himself broke without a penny to his name. And then also as a foreigner in a strange land during a famine, um, now he has no one to turn to. He's completely alone. And so it says that he attaches himself to a citizen of that land, and this citizen sends him out to feed his pigs. And as he's sitting out in the mud, um, toe-to-toe with these pigs, throwing food at them, watching them, making sure they stay together, he probably has a lot of time to reflect on his decisions And and it says that he comes to his senses and he realizes how stupid he's truly been. And he creates a plan in order to make things right with his father. And then in verse 18, we see that, that plan when it says, I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still along, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll stop there. He arose and he goes to his father. So the son has a plan. He's going to go back and he's going to confess his wrongdoing. And it says that he's going to beg to be made a higher servant, a hired servant. Now it's interesting to note that the easiest thing to do for him to come back would would simply say, Dad, I want to come back and I want to be one of your slaves. You see, slaves were part of the property. Um, They didn't receive a paycheck, but they were taken care of. They were giving housing. They were able to live in the household. It's interesting to know that the, that the son asked to come back as a hired servant. You see, a servant was usually a skilled craftsman. A servant was somebody who was paid for the work that they did. They had a skill, they, they would execute that skill, and then they would receive payment. And it's also interesting to know that if the son were to come back, uh, he didn't only need to make himself right with his father, but he also needed to make things right with the community. And part of that would be publicly paying the reparations to his father that he owed him for the land that he took. And so we see the son devising a plan how he's going to make things right with his father and he's going to make things right with his community, restoring himself and his father to the way things used to be. So essentially, if we were to look at the son's plan and break it apart, the son creates a five-point plan. Plan one, or point one, head home. Point two, apologize. Point three, become servant. Point four, pay back father. And point five, restore relationships. Doesn't that sound a lot like us too? When usually there's something going wrong in our life and we we see something that we've done, we figure out five ways that we're going to make things right, right? Right, right, right? (laughs) So let's read how the father responds to that plan in verse 20. At the second um, part of that verse, it says that his father saw, saw him, and saw him coming and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Oh man, I I, I truly hope to be a father like the father in this story one day. Because here's a father that it says he sees his son. In the midst of whatever he was doing on on, on his property that day, it says he sees his son. He sees his son coming. This shows me the gentle heart of a father who truly missed his son. That no matter what he was doing, he was always looking off into the distance, hoping and praying for the day that his son would return. And on this day, as he looks off into the horizon, he sees his boy coming home. And he doesn't just walk to him. It says he runs to him. Now, I want to illustrate this a little bit further. And so I was reminded of a story. When I was a, a, a lot younger, um, I spent some time in Texas one summer. And there I had a cousin who was, he was kind of a gangster. Um, his, his brothers were kind of gangsters too. And I obviously wasn't. I was this dorky kid from Pomona who was into like comic books and action figures. And here I am this summer spending time with family out in the middle of Texas. And I remember piling into my cousin's purple lowrider Nissan mini truck, and we bounced our way to the mall to do some shopping. And I remember getting out of the truck, because in Texas you can still ride in the back of a truck. I remember rolling out of that truck, actually, and I, and I, and I began to run to the mall. See, in, in my little 11-year-old self, I'm just so excited to buy either a new comic book or a new toy. I can't remember what it was. And as I begin to run to the entrance so I can hurry up and get to KB Toys, I remember my cousin grabbing me on the shoulder. And he says to me, Mitchie, my family calls me Mitchie. He says, Mitchie, gangsters don't run. We walk. <laughs> Obviously, my cousin had never thought that with a nickname like Mitchie, I was never going to become a gangster. <laughs> but I share that story to illustrate one point. That not that this father was a gangster, which in some cultures he might be actually a gangster for the way he loved his son, but I, I use this story to illustrate that in many cultures, um, it, it's not, how do I say this? It's men don't run, is I guess the best way to say that. If you're a leader, if you're a patriarch, you're, you're someone in the community, you don't run. You know who runs? Women run. You know who else runs? 11-year-old boys named Mitchie. Leaders didn't run. And this father sees his son off in the distance, and he hikes up his robe, exposing his legs for all the community to see, and it says he runs to his son. You see, this is no ordinary father, remember? This is the father that divided his inheritance between his sons. And just as the younger son gets to point one of his five-point plan of how he's going to make things right with dad, his dad cuts him off and he yells to his servant, quickly, grab my best robe. Not just grab a robe, but grab my best robe. The robe that I wear when we're going out. The robe that I wear when people come to see me. Never giving the prodigal son the chance to make things right. And on the shoulders of a boy who had been living with pigs, not caring about his smell or the feces in his hair, it says that the father wraps the robes on his shoulders. And in that gesture, the father says, I'm not going to let you make this right. I am. And I'm not even going to wait for you to clean yourself up. In the midst of your filth, in the midst of your nakedness, I'm putting my robe on you and I'm making this right. I'm the one that's going to restore you to our family. And then it says the father puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. 
And then the father orders for the fatted calf to be killed. Now, oftentimes when people come home that they've been, they've been away for a while, we want to throw celebrations at their home and we'll order pizza and we'll invite friends over and we'll, we'll simply spend time celebrating that person. But this fatted calf means so much more. You see, a fatted calf was usually reserved for when, uh, when, when noblemen or, or people of, of power would visit your estate. That's when you got out the fatted calf. It was also um, an article of food that fed a lot of people. One time when I was a kid, actually, I'm just remembering this, uh, my grandfather and a friend bought a cow. Um, and they bought a cow purely for the meat. I'm sorry for any vegans in the room. Um, but my grandfather bought this cow, and he had it slaughtered, um, and he took half the meat, and his friend took the other half. And I remember for months, we had steaks all the time. We would go over to my grandfather's house, and there would literally be steaks flowing out of his freezer. That is how much meat that a, 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 a fatted calf or fatted cow would produce. So you could easily feed over 100 people. And so if you're going to slay this calf, and you're going to, because there was no refrigerators then, remember, if you were going to cook this food, we have to eat it all now, you would easily have to invite over 100 people to this party. And so by slaying the fatted calf, the father's not only saying, I I want to celebrate you that you've returned, but also I want to restore you to the community. You think you want to be a servant and pay me back? No, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to celebrate, and I'm going to reintroduce you as my son. And then in verse 25, we see the older brother um, as he begins to hear of what's happening. It says, Now the older son was in the field, and as he came um, and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Your brother, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. And it says his father came out and entreated him. And that's a a fancy word for for pleaded with him, or he begged him. And he answered the father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? And he, the father, says to his son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So as the older brother in this story, as he begins to, um, to hear what the father has done, he's furious. Um, it's funny to note that he's not mad that his brother has come back. He's mad at his father's actions. Primarily, he's upset over, over the fatted calf. And though the, under, uh, excuse me, and though the older son, and through him, excuse me, we begin, um, we begin through his anger to see his character rise to the surface of our story. You see, through his anger, we begin to see the reality of how this son truly felt about his father. Furious over this fatted calf, the son refuses to enter the party and, and, and pouts outside the estate. So at this point, you're probably asking yourself, what is the deal with this calf, right? Other than it being this thing um, that, that feeds a lot of people and this thing that's for dignitaries, why is it so important to this older brother? Well, we have to remember that at the beginning of this parable, that when the younger son asks for his inheritance, it says that the father divides his estate. 
And so if you, you know division, two, one minus one, one goes to one side, one goes to the other side, there's, there's two. If you divide the estate, everything that is left belongs to the elder son. So essentially, the older brother owns everything that's left on the property. And he's not upset with his father. He's not even upset that his brother returned. He probably always knew that his dumb brother was going to come back at some point. He was going to use his resource and he was going to end up back on dad's porch asking for a handout. But the thing that he's most upset about is the stuff. He's upset that the father is recklessly giving away his stuff. His fatted calf, his robe, his ring, his sandals. And out of his, his, his fury with his father, he, like his older son, openly disrespects his father in front of all the community by throwing his fits and not entering the party. So here's a guy that only cares about what's his. Here's a guy that is open and, and willing to disrespect his father in front of everybody in order to get what he wants. And I guess it turns out that these two brothers aren't very different. I guess the only difference that's between them is that just one is obviously a sinner. And the other is kind of this hidden hypocritical saint. And then in verse 31, we see the father pleading with the younger son as he entreats him, as he begs him to enter the party. And just like that, our story is over. But as we begin to realize, though, post-parable, as we spend time um, looking at the, the, the character of the two brothers, um, it's like I said, it's easy to see how similar they are. See, they both wanted similar things in life. They both wanted stuff. Um, and in many ways, they, they both wanted a life of celebration. And let me unpack this. You see, the older son's beef, you get it? Fatted calf, beef. All right. Make sure you guys are awake. The older son's beef with his father um, was not just that he was giving away his stuff, but it was that he never threw him a celebration. Dad, you never threw me a party. You didn't even slay a goat for me. And this is one argument I, I really want to have with my kids one day, why I've never slayed a goat for him. He's upset that you've never, you've never thrown me a party. And he says, I've, I've followed all your commands. I've always been there. I've never left. I've been faithful. I've been loyal. But your son, the one that abandoned us, the one that, that wasted your property, the one that slept with prostitutes, for him, you throw the biggest party that our family has ever seen. And it starts to become hyper, crazy apparent that this son is only concerned with the things that he has done and the things that his brother has done. He, becomes, he begins to become so focused on the details of his story and his brother's story what he's done and what his brother hasn't done, that he completely misses out on who his father truly is. One of our favorite things to do as a family um, is go to Yosemite. Uh, We go, gosh, three, four times a year. And it never fails when we talk about Yosemite to people and we tell them that we're going there. And there's always people that say, I hate that place. Exactly. And every time I hear them say that, my mouth drops to the floor and I usually ask, well, why do you, why do you hate Yosemite? or as we call it, that go a lot, the park. Why do you hate the park? And they'll usually say, there's just too many people there. There's just too much trash. There's too many cars I can never park. It's just not worth it to go. But then in that same conversation, I asked him, did, but did you, did you see the half dome? Have you ever walked up to the falls and felt the mist on your face? 
Did, were, did you yawn during the, your time driving into the park and completely miss tunnel view? Have you ever been to a place where you literally, everywhere you go, you can meet people from all over the world at once? And I think that, that's oftentimes us, that we get so caught up in the details We get so caught up in the things that are or the things that aren't that we miss out on the beauty that's around us. You see, this was the fault of the eldest son. He becomes so confused with who he was and what he was done and who his brother was and what what his brother has done, he completely misses out on the celebration that his father is throwing. And just like Pastor Darren shared last week in Matthew chapter 9, and we'll see, we see it again this week, The religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes of the time, took great pride in knowing and living all the details, never truly seeing the grandeur of who Jesus was, only ever observing the celebration at a distance. Church, may this never describe us. May we never be so caught up in the details and the minutia of each other's lives that we completely miss out on the celebration that Jesus is throwing for all of us. You see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus gives each and every one of us a free pass to the celebration. And will we never miss the party by asking ourselves first, who's going to be there before I go? Because haven't we done that before? Haven't we been invited to a party? And before we join them, before we accept the invitation, we ask, well, that sounds like a lot of fun, but who's going to be there? Oh, John, that guy talks my ear off. I don't think I can sit next to him for a couple nights or even spend a couple hours with him. We, we begin to rationalize whether or not we're going to attend somewhere or be at something based off the people that are going to be there. And so when the father runs out to the younger son, the son's doing just that. The son's refusing to go in because his brother is there. The son's refusing to go in because his father is there. And we see a father plea and beg him to join the party. And then we look at the prodigal. The prodigal, different than his brother, was not or could not submit himself um, to his father's authority. And he decided or he discovered early on that he did not want to live under his father's rule. Maybe he had heard stories of things that were happening in far off lands He heard of parties and celebrations that he was missing out on while living in his father's home. He gets to the point where he just can't take it anymore. He couldn't take living underneath his dad's house. And so he takes his inheritance and he runs off to this far off land. Now I am confident that there are prodigals in the room this morning. How do you know this, Mitch? Because this is Southern California. This is the far off land that people go to when they leave their father's household. That's why many of us are here. And so perhaps you're sitting here today, very similar to the younger son in this story, down on your luck, out of resources, broke with nowhere to go. Out of desperation, you're here this morning. And maybe, like the prodigal in our story, you've begun to put together a plan of how you're going to make things right. And maybe being here is one of the points in your plan how you're going to make that right. But I want to remind you as you hear this that it wasn't the prodigal's plan that restored him to the house of the father. It was simply him turning home. And when he turned home, it was the father that restored him to the family. 
And it was the father that threw him the biggest celebration that he had ever been a part of. And if that's you, I want to say, brother, sister, that you no longer have to live in that far off land alone and isolated anymore. All the things in life that you think are are between you and the Father and that are keeping you out of the Father's house, that are keeping you in isolation, all of the filth and sin that you believe is in your life will never outnumber or outweigh the grace that the Father has towards his kids. And just like the Father in this story, there's a Father in heaven who wants to put his robe of righteousness around you and he wants to restore you to the community that you were always meant to be a part of. He wants to invite you into the biggest celebration that has, never, that has ever existed. Do you remember what Jesus said at the end of the first two parables, at the beginning of this chapter? In verse 7, he says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need to repent. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And much like the celebration that, I was, that was thrown for me on my 21st birthday, there are people in this community, there are people in this church that wants to come to your celebration. They want to sit at the table with you and they want to speak truth into your life and they want to come alongside you and they want to bless you and they want to take you out to dinner. They want to invite you into their lives. They want to celebrate with you, not only here at the table, but alongside all the angels and alongside the heavens But it only took one step, turning home. And over time, this is the funny thing about the table, that the first time you sit there, you might feel like this celebration is about you. But the more time we spend at the table, the more celebrations that we go to, the more people we invite to the table, we realize that the celebration has never been about us. The celebration is about how good the Father is. And together, at the table, we get to celebrate the gift that is his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I I, I thank you, Lord, for the father in this story. A father who recklessly, at the sake of his own reputation, at the sake of his own identity, desperately loved his children. God, I'm I'm so grateful that you are a father like that to us. Thank you, Lord, for, for, for bringing us to the table. Thank you, Father, for celebrating with us, God. Lord, if there's any prodigals, Lord, or if there's any um, hypocritical saints in the, in, the, in, the, in the room this morning, Lord, I'm just reminded that Darren shared last week that he always imagined that there were seats at the table for those re- refusing to show up. And God, in, in this story this morning, uh, we see the father that, that entreats and begs his sons, begs his son to come to the table. Father, would you remind us, Lord, that there is always a seat, Lord, whether it be an obvious sinner or a hypocritical saint, Lord, you truly desire to celebrate with us at the table. It's in your name we pray. Amen.